the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Chapter 60, verse 22, at the end of the verse, says, At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. Say the right time. We have an on-time God. And He has timing. He has purpose and plans. And He's going to make it happen at the right time. Y'all act like you don't believe that. Some of you act like that you've been waiting a long time and you're about to give up or something. Well, don't grow weary in well-doing. Keep believing. We're believers. That's what we do. We believe. Even when it don't look like it's going to happen. Look, God knows what he's doing. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. I hope you can believe that tonight. Tonight's message is part four of the series that we started some time ago. Now, I wasn't here, or none of us were here last week because it was July 4th. And then the week before that, Brother Tom preached an awesome message. I hope you were here for that. So it's been some weeks since we've been on this series, but our series is called The Human Condition. And we started in Genesis 1-1 and even beyond, and we've taken a look at, at God's plan for humanity and, and the situation that we're in as human beings from the very beginning. And we've made our way all the way to the New Testament now. And tonight's series, uh, the message is part four, an on-time God. Uh I listened to some of my previous messages on the podcast, and you know you can do that too. If you miss a message, they're on the podcast. And uh, if you don't know how to get to the podcast, I think there's instructions back there at the desk or something on one of those little things. But I noticed that I was doing a lot of recapping because you're talking about the whole Old Testament we've already been through, and every week I'd come back and try to catch us back up to where we were. And last time I preached this message, I did about 30 minutes of recapping, so I didn't have very much. So I said, I still need to recap because it's been three weeks. I, we need to kind of catch back up together for the ones who haven't been here. But I said, if I do it, I'll get bogged down, and uh, I'll start preaching something on the way, and I'll, I'll do another 35 minutes. So what I have done is I have found a video that in five minutes sums up what we preached these first three messages. It'll catch us up, so if y'all don't mind, we're going to watch a five-minute video, and then I'll pick up from there. In the beginning, God created the universe and a planet called Earth. Humans were formed in God's image to continue God's work. But soon, humans decided we want to live our way, not God's. Selfishness and violence filled the world. So God started over with just one family. And God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. The land around you is now yours. Your family will be my blessing to the entire world. 
In just a few generations, they grew into a large nation named Israel. The Egyptians became fearful and forced the Israelites to be their slaves. Through a humble leader named Moses, God led the Israelites in a great exodus back toward their promised land. Along the journey, God gave laws and commands to help the Israelites follow God's ways. Finally, after 40 years of struggle and complaining in the desert, the Israelites arrived back home in the promised land. In victory, the people worshipped God, but soon after, they turned from God and lived their own rebellious ways. This became a pattern from generation to generation. Israel's greatest judge was Samuel. He followed God's ways and spoke for God as a prophet. He told Israel that God was the only king they ever needed. But they desired to be like the corrupt nations surrounding them and insisted, we want a human king who we can see to rule over us just like the other nations. So Samuel found a man named Saul to be Israel's first king. His reign began well, but before long, Saul stopped following God's ways and made many bad decisions. So Samuel told Saul, because you have turned your back on God, God has rejected you as a king. Samuel's search for the next king led to a courageous young shepherd boy named David. When David grew up to be king, God blessed him and the Israelites greatly. But David was not perfect. He had an affair with a married woman and committed a murder to cover it up. But deep inside, David always loved God and would return to living in God's ways. Known as the poet warrior, he wrote music to God called Psalms, heartfelt expressions of prayer, struggle, and thankfulness. After many years as king, David gave the throne to his son Solomon. God also told David, one day, one of your descendants will rule with a kingdom that will never end. Solomon succeeded his father David, becoming the richest king in Israel's history. Full of God's wisdom, Solomon wrote books like Proverbs and built a magnificent temple, a permanent tabernacle reminding people of God's continual presence. But Solomon strayed from God, marrying corrupt wives who led him into worshiping false gods. Civil war broke out, dividing the country into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Soon, both of these kingdoms were led by corrupt kings who ignored God's ways. During this time, prophets were sent as messengers, calling the Israelites to return to God. They warned of the destructive consequences ahead. The prophet Elijah, a wild and rugged man, showed up false prophets by calling on God to give an awesome display of fire. The prophet Elisha followed him, bringing a boy back to life by causing him to sneeze. These prophets challenged the Israelites and their kings to return to God's better ways. But the Israelites would not listen. Distracted in their own rebellion, other nations swept in and conquered both of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. God's people were forced out of the promised land and many were taken away to be slaves once again. The temple was destroyed and the people lost everything. This was a time called the exile, where many of the Israelites, now called Jews, were scattered across different lands. One prophet named Daniel was sent to a city named Babylon. The law demanded that everyone pray only to the king of Babylon, but Daniel refused and prayed to God three times a day. So Daniel was thrown into a pit of hungry lions. 
But God closed the mouths of the lions, and Daniel emerged the next morning without a scratch. Though scattered, God was still watching over the Jewish people, and God gave them hope, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah's words, I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, returning them to the promised land and filling their hearts and minds with my ways. Sixty years later, this hope was realized. The Persian Empire freed the Jewish people to return to their promised land. A small number gathered back in the capital city of Jerusalem, and a new, smaller temple was built under the leadership of Ezra. Reunited, they celebrated and shouted with joy. But the elders wept in remembrance of what was lost. Prophets like Malachi and Isaiah pointed to the future and a coming king, a messiah, one who would fully restore Israel and bring a new kingdom of peace. So the Jewish people waited and hoped, and God would not speak through the prophets again for 400 years. So anybody remember all that? <laughs> so, I guess we'll wait for the light. Huh? You remember how we talked about the first week we began to talk about the Old Testament? We were looking for threads, how God weaved different threads, and how how we begin to see a picture as the Old Testament emerges. And, and when you're in the Old Testament, you may not can see it all, but as you look back, we can... We're looking through that lattice and we're starting to see this making sense. We're being able to see God's picture. And each piece of the puzzle may not make sense at the time, but when you put it with the others, it begins to make a beautiful picture. What are the uh, threads that anybody has seen in the Old Testament that we've already talked about? Anybody interactive tonight would like to throw out something? I know you saw that man is inherently sinful because of being infected with sin. Um, God is inherently good, loving man, and so forth. One of the major pictures I've seen is that we all want to fight against God and not wrestle with him like Jacob did. You remember Jacob wrestled with God on the banks of the Jabbok. And I think it was a big difference. We want to fight against God because we want God off of us, but have you ever... As a parent, I remember when both my kids were small, we would snuggle wrestle. Now, that's what I called it. I told them, whoa, it was WWE. Come on, let's wrestle. And they would be all excited. They'd be trying to whoop Daddy, you know. And they'd be throwing punches, but they couldn't hurt Daddy. And Daddy, the whole time, just grabbing them. And I was snuggling my face all into them, you know, and just loving on them and acting like they was winning and letting them get me and all this, you know. But the whole time, I was wrestling, snuggle wrestling. Y'all know what I'm talking about as parents, right? And that's what it's like when we wrestle with God. He's up there. There's nothing you can do to hurt him. You, he's just rubbing his face all over you and just loving on you when you come to him with questions, doubts, even your unbelief. Why don't you just be honest with God? Why don't we wrestle with God instead of running from God or fighting against God but never encountering God? Go to God and tell him the way you feel. And wrestle with him. If people would wrestle with God like Jacob did, then I think they would come to see how good he is. He's not afraid of your questions. And if things are not going right in your life, say, God, let's wrestle. 
Let's wrestle this out. God loves to wrestle with his children. He doesn't like, like the unbelief or whatever, but he's, he understands. He's not afraid of it. He, he's a good parent. He will talk you through. Somebody talk me down, man. You know, He'll talk you down. God's always trying to move us forward, but he doesn't want us to leave behind the things we've learned in the past. He's building line upon line, precept upon precept. He wants us to build upon the things that we learned in the past. What are some of the life lessons that you may have learned in the past? Uh, credit cards are not your friend. <laughs> Don't ignore that check engine light. You know, what's some of the things that you've learned? Lift with your legs, not your back. Some, some, some of these things we learned the hard way, right? They don't even backstab you anymore. They just go on and get you in the front. <laughs> we learned a lot of stuff about relationships. We learned that uh, you should wear sunscreen at the beach, <laughs> right? <laughs> Somebody over here embarrassed. <laughs> but we've learned a lot of things through our journey of the Old Testament. And the main things that we learn in life, we learn. We need to go to the source of all truth. God doesn't want us to forget. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Are you guys all right tonight? Y'all look like you might be a little worn out. I cut the air conditioning on for you and everything. Cut it on high. 1 Corinthians 10.1 I don't want you to forget dear brothers and sisters about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that could move, was moved ahead of them and all of them walked through the sea on, on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. <clears throat> All of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. See, that's telling you right there. Jesus was back in the Old Testament. We know the New Testament is when Jesus came and everything, but he was back there too. You see, God was before all of this. He's the... He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He wasn't just that baby born in a manger. He's been God for a long time, for all of eternity. And all these people, they had the same experiences. They walked through on the dry ground, the Red Sea. They saw the miracles of God. They had the same opportunity. And what does it say? Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They died not having entered in to the promises that God wanted them to have. Verse 6 says, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave the evil things that they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and died from snake bites. 
and don't grumble as some of them did. And then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happen to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. I believe he's saying for us. All the things that we have studied in the Old Testament, we need to, we need to hold on to these things. We need to learn from these things. Because they were written, written to warn us. Every thread of the Old Testament begins to bring God's plans into in focus. God's beautiful mystery beginning to emerge. And guess what? What the picture is. It's not an abstract. It's not a landscape. It's, it's a portrait. Does anybody know who it's a portrait of? the coming Messiah, Jesus. That's what the Old Testament is a portrait of. That spiritual rock. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us towards, a, the Old Testament itself is pointing us towards the need of a Savior. The law was given as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Everything that we have studied up until this point in human history is an example for us and a testimony that, hey, you can't save yourself you got a real problem that you, you can't get out of by yourself, and you need a Savior. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Colossians 2, verse 2. I'm going to read it in the message translation. It's like a paraphrase. It's, I wouldn't normally preach out of this, but it says it in a way that I just want to bring out tonight. You can read it in whatever you want to after this. But Colossians 2, 2, it says, I want you woven into a tapestry of love. Sounds like he's talking about threads. I want you, I want you, woven into this tapestry of love in touch with everything there is to know about God. Then you will have minds that are confident and at rest focused on Christ, God's great mystery. There it is, boom! What was the great mystery God, God's Savior, Jesus Christ, God's great mystery, the big picture. And all the richest treasure of wisdom and knowledge, the, every little puzzle piece, are embedded in that mystery and nowhere else. Did you see uh, last week that Trump was building the suspense, President Trump was building the suspense about his pick for the Supreme Court justice. And the world was on edge and people were waiting to see who it would be. They knew it was narrowed down and all the news agencies were going crazy and nobody could get a scoop and, and he was hiding it real good and everybody was just anxious to know. Well, God has spent 4,000 years of Old Testament history painting this beautiful picture 
And then, as it said there, there was a 400-year gap from the last thing that Malachi said until Jesus was born. And so he gave us 400 years of silence. 400 years to build this anticipation for this big reveal of this beautiful painting. This beautiful understanding of the Old Testament and what his purpose, his great mystery is. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the right time came. Say right time. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children at the right time. At just the right time. We don't understand his timing, but it's always the right time when God does it. I can guarantee you. At just the right time, our own time God sent his own son born in the likeness of man, to come and take away the sins of the world. Didn't Jesus come at just the right time in your life? You remember when you got saved? Did he wait for you to get all cleaned up and come to him? No, because you weren't even thinking about doing that. <laughs> he rescued you back when you needed rescuing. When you got to the point where the wages of your sin was getting so heavy, more than likely, you was looking for a rescuer. And he waited for just the time that you would receive him, and then he swooped in like a, a knight in shining armor. And he rescued you from yourself. He is a rescuer. Then once we get saved, we often try to rush Jesus after that. We don't trust his time like we ought to. We don't wait for the right time. The disciples thought that Jesus should hurry up. Jesus, Lazarus is sick, man. We need to get over there. And Jesus says, we'll go a little later. No, Jesus, Lazarus is bad, man. Didn't you hear him? We need to get there. But see, they didn't know. Jesus had a plan. You never have to rush Jesus. Jesus always has a plan. He knows what he's doing. Jesus had to tell him, look, Lazarus is already dead. And I waited so that God could be even more glorified when I get there and raise him from the dead. See, God had a plan. They were trying to rush Jesus. You don't need to rush Jesus. In John chapter 7, Jesus' enemies wanted to kill him. In John chapter 8, they wanted to seize him and throw him in jail. But guess what? In both cases, it didn't happen. Why? Because Jesus said, it ain't my time yet. See, everything Jesus does, was it was on time. Jesus knew when his time was. His mother said, oh, Jesus, they run out of wine here at the wedding. Is there something you can do? He said, Mama, it ain't my time. Of course, he gave in to Mama. <laughs> so, so that gives us a little hope that we can change Jesus' mind, but you better have a good excuse <laughs> But he did give in. He made an exception for mama. There were many in the Bible who waited for Jesus' timing or waited for God's timing. They, they did the right thing. Young Joseph that we talk about. Boy, you, you know a young, strapping 17-year-old boy that's, he then got thrown in a pit and sold into slavery. I bet every temptation was for him to run off 
to make something happen, to escape or something. He, he, he's wasting his youth. All my 20s, I've been here. Now they put me in prison. And he's upset about the way his life is turning out. But no, there was something special about Joseph. He listened to God and he did what God said in the midst of his, his tragic situation. And God was able at the right time to promote him to second in charge of all of Egypt. If Joseph would have ran off, got impatient, what would have happened? He'd have missed it, messed up the plan. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of I think a lot of times we do that. God's teaching us something. We're going through a situation and, and we're ready to rush out of it. And we don't pray. We don't ask God what he wants us to do. We just want a relief from the situation. And God's like, I got you here for a reason. I'm teaching you something. And I'm going to open the door at the right time if you'll, if you'll wait. If you'll wait. If you'll stay on the potter's wheel. Because I got my hands in your situation. But if you jump off, oh, you're just going to be a lump on the floor. Many of y'all are very lumpy. No. So your nickname's Lumpy. No. <laughs> I think about Abraham and Sarah. They were promised a child, but it wasn't happening according to their time schedule. What'd they do? They made a mistake. They tried to make it happen. But the good thing is, is when you make a mistake, you can get back on track. Because Abraham and Sarah got their faith back right, and they started waiting on God's timing. And in Hebrews 6.15 it says, And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Say patiently. Nobody likes to hear a sermon on patience. Y'all thinking, oh Lord, now, now God's going to make me wait. Caleb and Joshua, they were the two spies that came back with the good report. They said, God, we can do it. And they were ready to do it. But because all the other ones around them were naysayers, God said, I can't let y'all go in. And so they were stuck with all the naysayers for 40 years in the wilderness. Oh, my goodness. I would have been tempted to run off, try to go in the promised land myself or something. But not Joshua. Joshua was faithful, and he just was obedient to his leader, Moses, and eventually he was the one that led him across when Moses died. And Caleb, he was still faithful when he went across, even though he was an old man, 83 years old, I think, when he finally took his mountain that God promised him. But you know what? They would have never took their mountain if they would have run from God's plan. Jacob, that guy is something else. He served his tricky Uncle Laban 14 years for a girl. She must have been one fine girl, Rachel. He served her seven years, and then his tricky Uncle Laban, on his wedding night, snuck in his older daughter, Leah, into the bedroom where it was dark. Now see, if Jacob would have been a little more patient that first wedding, and made sure he had the right woman. <laughs> he probably didn't care about seven years later, you know. But no. But if he'd have been a little more patient, he wouldn't have had to wait another seven years. But he did. And he got Rachel. He got what his heart's desire was. Then there's people who suffer, like Job. 
people who go through hard times. You're like, when you're going through something, it's all, all's on your mind is getting through it. But are you thinking about being faithful in the midst of the trial? Are you just complaining and talking bad about God? Are you giving up on God when you're going through something tough? Job received double for his trouble, it says in Job 42.10, because he patiently endured his time of suffering. And the, the experts say, you know, we think about Job and how his life was so terrible, and all the terrible, the devil threw everything he had at him. Killed off all his family except his wife, took all his property, took away his health. And that, but the, the experts estimate that that was only nine months of Job's life. And Job went on to live to be an old man. And in Job 42.10, it says that God gave him double back of family and, and wealth and houses and everything that he had before. And so, see, so, that's proof that sometimes you think you're going something through something so terrible, some people would have just committed suicide or, or gave up. But this is a long life. And there's going to be, every one of us is at some point in our existence is going to be called to walk through a time of suffering. And you're going to be challenged. Are you going to wait for God's right time and are you going to just escape at all cost? But what looks so bad today, God can turn it around. He can turn it around every time. It don't matter how sorrowful you are at night. Joy comes in the morning. Every day. Every new beginning, every morning, His mercy is new. And God is, will come in like a flood at the right time and save you. Isaiah 60, 22, at the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. He will make it happen. Patience, patience, patience doesn't just mean passively waiting. She loves when I say things funny. Patience doesn't just mean passively waiting. A lot of times the word patience translated in the Bible can also, in different versions, will be translated endurance. So it notates not just sitting back waiting. Okay, I'm going through a hard time, so I'm not going to do nothing. I'm just going to wait here on God. But Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance, or it says in some translations, patience, the race that God has set before us. So when you're running a race, that doesn't notate us a sitting back and waiting that means you're still giving it everything you got through the search, the situation. And oftentimes you stay in the situation much longer if you just sit there and pout. That might be what try, God's trying to work out of you. So, Joyce Myers says patience is not simply the ability to wait. It's how we behave while we're waiting. I would add to that that the best way 
to wait is do something else productive in the meantime. You may, you may have come to a dead end in your, in your job search or in your, your spouse search or wherever you're at and you feel like moving, and if you just sit and concentrate on that all the time, you just feel like you're about to b- blow up. It just becomes heavy. But there's a lot of things going on in life. And you can get out and do something else in the meantime. Work on something else. Help somebody else through their situation. That'll get your thoughts off of your situation. And it'll really help you be able to be patient and wait for the right time, God's right time in your situation. There were many people who waited for God's right time, but there were also many people who didn't. One of those was mentioned in that video, King Saul. The priest Samuel told King Saul, that in seven days I'm going to come down and we're going to have a burnt offering. No, I say I think he said three days. Or I can't remember Zach's story, but he, he said, I'm coming down there and we're going to have a burnt offering, <clears throat> God says. Well, Saul waits. It's been seven days and Samuel ain't showing up yet. This is before the cell phone age, okay? <laughs> he ain't going to call. He don't know where Samuel is. Samuel's late. And he grows impatient. He says, well, let's just go on and do the burnt sacrifice ourselves. And if you know anything about God's ways, that ain't right. The priest is supposed to do the burnt, burnt offering. Even if you're king, that's off limits to you. You're not the priest. And so he does the burnt offering. And that's one of the major factors that led to God pulling his kingship away. Because he wouldn't wait. He had no patience. I think about the Israelites when they come out of Egypt. Moses goes up on the mountain. I want you to picture this. You're at the foot of a mountain, and at the top of the mountain, God's talking with your leader. And because he's up there 40 days, they're down at the bottom of the mountain getting impatient. How impatient, you say? By the time Moses comes down with his tablets, all happy about the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own finger up the mountain, he gets down and he looks and all the people's naked. I'm not making this up. They're down there having an orgy at the bottom of the mountain. They said, I don't know where Moses went. Let's have an orgy. Let's, let's worship a golden calf. Hey, let's put some jewelry together and make us something to worship. This wasn't but 40 days, y'all. They knew he went up to meet with God. You tell me people can't lose their concentration, lose their patience. What about Esau? Esau's uh, Jacob's brother. He comes in from hunting all day. He's hungry. Jacob's got some stew going. He says, give me some of that. And Jacob said, well, give me your birthright, and I will. Now Esau, he can't go over there and get his own bowl and wait 15 more minutes and make him some stew. He's going to sell his birthright instead of spend 15 minutes to make his own stew. God hated that. He said, you don't care about the things that I care about. Do you, 
Does anybody in here know anybody impatient? Is anybody, don't raise your hand, that I'm the one, I can't wait for anything. I believe impatient people have to wait much longer than patient people. I believe you're sowing in the wrong direction when you're impatient and you won't wait on God. You're going to be the, per the very person that's going to end up having to wait on God until you learn some patience. God will work with you about that, I guarantee you. Moses. You wouldn't think Moses, but he was dealing with all those knuckleheads. I mean, he was dealing with a lot of stuff. He come, he's the one come down and saw him naked, you know. I mean, these people complaining all the time. They got Moses so angry one time, God told him to touch the rock with his staff and water would come out. Moses got mad and struck the rock twice. It showed impatience. It showed that he got angry with the people. And then he, he said, I'll give you this water or whatever. And it also, he took the credit for the water coming out of the rock. And he stole God's glory. you got to be careful with your anger. you got to be careful. Because when, when you get impatient with people and folks and things, we do things that we live to regret. <clears throat> Isaiah 60, 22 says, At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. Did I mention that? Turn to Philippians 4, 6. says, be anxious for nothing. You know what I mean, anxious, right? You know what that word means. Jumpy. Man, you got to have it, man. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, will keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus our Lord. That'll keep you in peace. You see, God doesn't say, don't ask me about that. I done told you. No. Make your request to God. Tell him what you want to tell him. Give him thanks and trust him with the timing. Trust him with the plan. God is the one with the plan. And it's for us to believe it's going to come to pass. And, and so get yourself on the right frame of mind. Be thankful. Go on and make your request known to God pray keep your eyes on Jesus because God does have a plan nobody puts baby in a corner and nobody rushes God you know what I'm saying nobody can rush God even his mother Mary he made a conscious decision to want to do that I'm sure but you can't rush God Psalms 90 verse 4 says for you talking about God a thousand years are as a passing day. Then in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 8, it says, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. So two places in the Bible right there, you see that to God, a day and a thousand years, all the same. Why? 
because he transcends time, space, and dimension that we live in. He lives in the future already. He is bigger than the, the realm in which we live in. He lives outside of the confines that we experience as human beings. He is bigger than us. His ways are higher. But it does say a thousand years as a day, twice there. And I think about in the creation, God created the earth in six literal days, and on the seventh day he rests a day. But many scholars and want to be prophets and so forth, they believe that each one of those days represents a thousand years. You know, the Bible says God tells the, the end from the beginning. And many people think that you can read the first few books, uh, chapters of the book of Genesis and see all you need to know. Tell you the end from the beginning. God is like that. And many believe those seven days represent the 7,000 years that man will experience here on the earth. 6,000 years, uh, 4,000 years of the Old Testament. 2,000 years that we're experiencing right now of God's grace. And at the end of the sixth day, what happens? God rested. And at the end of 6,000 years, what happens? We'll rest with God. And that's the way many people understand uh, prophecy and the things and uh, God's way of doing things. And I thought it was neat. Did you know that the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day? When he says, let there be light, there was light, God could be the light, but he didn't create the sun and the moon till the fourth day. And it was in the 4,000 years of human history that his son came into the earth to be the light of the world. And it was after 4,000 years that he paid the sin debt and that we could be filled with his light and we could be reflectors like the moon of his light. The sun and the moon came on the fourth day. God's plans are beautiful to behold, but usually after the fact because you really can't tell what's going on in the midst of it sometimes. It's not so easy to, to understand when things are being carried out. Ask the devil. He had no idea how God was using him at the crucifixion. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 says, The wisdom we speak is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden hidden see God hid these things because he knew he had an enemy down here if he knew the plan he'd be making adjustments to try to, to thwart the plan but his plan was previously hidden even though he made it for the ultimate glory for our ultimate glory before the world began see God had a plan I'm trying to tell you and it's for our good he made it for our glory before the world began he had a plan none of this took God by surprise when Adam sinned in the garden, God didn't say, oh, I didn't see this coming. No, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus already knew he was going to have to come after 4,000 years to save us before he created us. He had a plan. His plan was previously hidden even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world, the devil and all of them, they would, if they would have understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, if they'd have known 
how they were playing into God's trick, they would have never crucified Jesus because they thought that, that they were going to win and God turned it around and used it against them and triumphed over them because of the resurrection. Before Jesus left, the disciples asked Jesus about the timing of his plan. When are you going to set up your kingdom down here, Jesus? And in Acts 1-7, he said, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you don't need to know everything. You're on a need-to-know basis. And you don't need to know some things. What you need to be busy about is being filled with the Holy Spirit and telling everybody that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Telling everybody they can be saved and forgiven. In Judea, Samaria, to the other parts of the world, you do your part, I got the plan. You don't need to know the day I'm coming back. Just be busy about my business when I get back. You don't have to have any worries. We serve an on-time God. Man, sometimes we wish that he would hurry up a little bit, but he's always right on time. Isaiah 60, says, At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. Did I mention that? At the right time. Everybody in here is saved, going to heaven, and you know it. Any question in your mind? If there's somebody here right now that would say, if I died, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. I feel like I, I would. If you don't know, the Bible says that you can know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 12 or 13. God wants you to know. He don't want you down here guessing, especially since he sent his son to die on the cross for us, to give his life as a ransom, as a substitute, to pay the penalty for our sin. Boy, it's your hate to see that go to waste. For you to stay in your sins when all he asks of you is to confess him as the Lord of your life and welcome him into your life and ask for forgiveness and receive it. And he says, if you'll confess me as the, with your mouth as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He just wants you to Confess it, make it public, believe it, and make him the Lord of your life. And you can be made right with God. That was his plan from the beginning. Everything that we see, all the picture paints this glorious picture of Jesus' love for humanity. He's, he's long-suffering and patient. He's not willing that nobody die and go to hell. It's not his plan. The only reason anybody would ever die in their sins is because they reject, and they, and they must want to st They don't want Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.